0: Welcome back friends, Bill Creasy here with another episode of Scripture Uncovered. Over the past few times together, we've been looking at examples of Jesus' preaching of his application of Scripture to -to day-to-day difficulties and problems. We looked at his lesson on the fear of persecution, we looked at a lesson on detachment and radical simplicity, and a lesson on the responsibilities of discipleship. Today, I'd like to turn to a lesson on Jesus' opponents. How did he deal with those people that were difficult? Those people who criticized him, those people who didn't like at all what he was doing. And I'd like to begin by turning to Luke chapter 13 at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit For 18 years, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Well, she could not straighten up at all. Bent over. The Greek phrase is literally, she was being bent double. A much more vivid image than simply bent over. Grammatically, it's a present active participle suggesting that Satan binding her for 18 years was not a single act that caused her condition 18 years ago, but it's an ongoing action across the entire 18 years, right to the very moment Jesus encounters her. And of course, Jesus will heal her on the Sabbath, arousing the ire of the synagogue leaders. But when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and he said to her, Now this is in the synagogue. Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work. So come and be healed on one of those days, not on the Sabbath. Well, I suppose that's understandable. The woman had been being bent double for 18 years. Could she not have been healed the day before or the day after? In Judaism today, conservative Judaism and Reform, if you're walking down Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, you've been up there visiting and having a grand old time and doing some shopping and having lunch, and you are crossing the street talking to your friends, and you step off the curb and get hit by a car, the ambulance will come, scoop you up, and take you to Cedars-Sinai Hospital, where they'll perform surgery even on the Sabbath. But, If you want to get elective surgery, a facelift, let's say, they won't schedule it for the Sabbath. That's optional. You can do it before, you can do it after. Human need always takes precedent over ritual law. But there are limits. It's not your desire that matters. It's your need that matters. So one could argue, as the synagogue leaders did, that... This woman's been coming here every day for 18 years. Could have been the day before or the day after. You didn't have to do it today. But Jesus said to them, You hypocrites, hypocrites, actor, someone wearing a mask, someone showing a different face to the public from who they truly are. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath, untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, she was being bent double, a present active participle, an ongoing action for 18 years, Satan oppressing her moment by moment for 18 years? Should she not be set free, on the Sabbath day, from what bound her. And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated because it was an urgent need. The people, though, were delighted with what he was doing. They saw the importance of it. They saw the truth of it. And this story is immediately followed by Jesus' asking, What is the kingdom of God like? To what should I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Now we need to look at this carefully. It's a simile. It is like, like a mustard seed. A mustard seed tiny little seed, like a poppy seed. But when planted, it doesn't grow into a tree, but rather a large bush. When we travel to Israel in the springtime, and we get settled in on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and we drive up the next morning to the Mount of Beatitudes, about a 10 minute drive, maybe 15 minutes at most, and we look out over the Sea of Galilee, the sloping side of the Mount of Beatitudes toward the Sea of Galilee. And you look around, it's springtime. After the winter rains, the flowers bloom. And I'll tell you, it is beautiful. The whole hillside is covered in yellow and purple. The yellow are the mustard seed plants. They they cover the land. They grow wild. And the purple are thistles with purple blossoms to them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sight. So the kingdom of God is like that tiny little seed that when planted spreads everywhere. And the birds of the air perch in its branches. Now I've been told most often that it makes a very nice home, a very nice home for the little birds of the air, but birds in scripture are always a negative image, always. Remember in the parable of, the, of the, the farmers planting the seed and some falls on the rocks and it's eaten up by the birds? And when Jesus explains the parable, the birds are Satan who eat up the word of God and take it away from people? Birds in scripture are always a negative image. So why did Jesus follow up this story of the woman bent double with this parable. What is the kingdom of God like? They're sitting in the synagogue. What is it like? The word of God spreads all over. But there are some, like these synagogue leaders, these hypocrites, these actors, who perch in its branches. nasty people and again he said with what shall I compare the kingdom of God it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into large amounts of flour until it worked all through the dough well yeast that's how you make a nice fluffy loaf of bread isn't that a good thing The kingdom of God is like the yeast in the dough. No, it follows the same pattern as the mustard seed. Yeast is always a negative image in Scripture. On the very first Passover, way back when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they put blood on the doorposts and they ate the the lamb and unleavened bread, bread without yeast, yeast is an emblem of sin in scripture so what shall i compare the kingdom of god to it's like yeast that a woman mixed into a large amount of dough and it worked its way through the dough it's true i remember my grandmother baking bread on this on the, in the oven and she'd make the dough with the yeast in it and put it on the back of the stove to to be warm and it would rise But then if you forgot about it, it would keep rising and keep rising, and it would slop over and fall down behind the stove, and it would smell and be rancid. Well, the yeast, like a woman who mixed a large amount of flour and worked it all through the dough. Yeast is an emblem of sin, and sin is always attractive at the beginning. You wouldn't do it if it weren't. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'll sin big today. It just sort of happens. And when it takes root in your life, it grows and it corrupts. Jesus said it in the synagogue following the parable of the mustard seed. So the birds in the bush... And the yeast in the dough are those hypocrites in the family of God. And we've all encountered them, haven't we? Every one of us has encountered birds in the bush and yeast in the dough. People who said, oh yes, I'm I'm a, a loving member of the family of God, but they they can be the nastiest people. And they can be in leadership positions. They can be pastors. Jesus continues. Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, given what you said up there in Galilee about the synagogue and the yeast and the dough and the birds and the bush, Are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking, Sir, open the door! But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you came from. I don't have a clue who you are. And then then you'll say, Well, uh, Lord, we ate and drank with you, and you you taught in our streets. He'll reply, I don't know you or where you came from. I don't have a clue who you are. Get away from me, you evildoers. And they'll be weeping there and, Gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are thrown out. People will come from east and west, north and south, and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. The family of God, the church. How do we get into the family of God? Well, we should do a whole series of podcasts on this one. But we are born into this world in a condition of sin. A condition of sin. Sin is not an act that we commit. It's a condition that we're in that manifests itself in outward sinful action. A condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in sinful action. That's how we're born. We're born into the world in that condition. But then, God provides the grace that enables us to respond in faith. And he'll provide sufficient grace for every person to respond. And it's a very interesting process, certainly as I've experienced it. You know, having no desire, no capacity, no interest in God at all. And God provides that little tiny drop of grace. And you become curious. You become interested. And you take a little step closer. And he provides more grace. And a little step closer. And he provides more grace. You want to get to know him. And how do you get to know him? You listen to him, that is, in scripture. You talk to him, that is, in prayer. And you meet his friends, other people in the family of God. And over time, that grace increases and increases. And at some point, he'll say to you, Would you like to spend your life with me? Would you like to spend eternity with me? And now you have a choice. You can say, yes, I would. And if you say that, you take his hand and you move positionally from the world into the family of God. Your position changes. And it happens by grace through faith. Once in the family of God, you begin living a life, as Paul says, worthy of the calling we've received, a life of active love or a life of good works. You get into the family of God by grace through faith. You live in the family of God by a life of active love, of good works. And across the rest of your life in the family of God, it's a process of sanctification until you step out into eternity into God's presence. I often compare that to falling in love, you know, and I've told this story in class so many times that uh, if you've heard it already, you can just turn the podcast off now because you've done it. But in class, I, often I have very large classes, five, 600 people. And, uh, and we go, we go on for, for five or seven years through the whole Bible, verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation, two hours a week, every week for five or seven years. And, uh, and when people come to class, they sit in the same place. Just like when you go to church. I'll bet you sit in the same pew every Sunday. And uh, I look out over the crowd and you get used to who's there and who's where. and And then one day you notice... And we take a break in the middle, a two-hour class, break in the middle. And you're out there in class, and you go out and you have some coffee, and you're talking with other people. And you meet this person, this guy. And uh, you say, oh, are you new to class? No, I've been coming every every week for three years now. Oh, never noticed him. He sat on the other side of the church toward the back. You never noticed him. But then you come back in after talking, you think, well, that was a nice fellow. And then after class, you go home and, uh, and, and you do your life and you go to work and so on. Class is coming up the next week and you think, you know, I wonder if I'll see so-and-so. So you look for them. And sure enough, you find them and you talk before class and maybe you sit together. I notice that. I look out there and I know that you've moved. Well, time goes on. You get to know each other. You talk to each other, you listen to each other, you meet each other's friends. And then at some point in that relationship, you're falling in love with this guy. And at some point in this relationship, you, you go out to a nice dinner and you, you have wine and lovely food and flowers on the table. And at the end of dinner, when dessert comes, he looks across the table. And he says to you, I've been looking for you all my life. Would you marry me? And you're shocked because you've been thinking the same thing. Now you have a choice. You can say, "Uh, no, sorry, been there, done that, not interested. (laughs) Or you can say, I've been looking for you all my life. And yes, I would love to marry you. spend my life with you. Dinner's over, wedding's set, we all come to the wedding on a Saturday morning, and then off you go on a honeymoon, but then you come home, and now you have to start living a life together, a life as a family. Your position has changed. When you walked into the church, you were you. When you walked out, you were us. And now you want to live a life that honors that relationship, live a life of active love. So salvation, being saved as it were, is the very same thing. We're born into the world in a condition of sin, no desire for God, no capacity for God, no nothing. But God provides the grace that enables you to respond in faith, and it's a choice you could say, no, I'm, I'm not interested. I know some of those people who go to Bible classes. They're weird. And, you know, I, I even know some who listen to that, whoever that guy is on the podcast. I don't want to be like them. You could say, no. We studied the Annunciation a while back on our podcast. And Mary had the complete freedom to say yes to God or no. She said, yes. Salvation is not a reward for good behavior. It's a choice to step into the family of God and live life within the family or not. So Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. And once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, he'll stand outside knocking, pleading, Sir, open the door. But he'll say, I didn't know you. You were a phony. I provided the grace that enabled you to respond in faith, but you were just playing some stupid game. You never did step into the family. You wanted people to think you did. Now, can you think of anyone in your local family of God, in your church, who's like that? Even some really important people, people in leadership positions, who are just playing a game. Jesus has a lot to say about his opponents. Well, that brings us up to the end of our podcast. Look forward to talking with you again. And, uh, oh, please do. Come to LogosBibleStudy.com and uh, have a look at our live classes. Well, they're online now because of the COVID-19, but uh, we're studying the Minor Prophets. And today, I finished writing the lesson on Micah. So we've covered Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Uh, Next week, we'll be looking first at Jonah. So it's really good material, I think. And who knows anything about the Minor Prophets? You know, they're minor, not because they're less important. They're short. But uh, but please do join us. And in the online classroom, we have every, every class across that seven-year period is either there or it's going to be there. And you can take the full courses in the online classroom. So thank you. Blessings to all of you. See you in a couple of days. Bye-bye.